from the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. This is Backstory with the American History Guys. Welcome to the show. I'm Brian Bellow, and I'm here with Ed Ayers. Hi. And Peter Onus with us. Hey, Brian. We're going to start today in the early 1800s. This was a time when the U.S. government was still a new experiment, one that looked as likely to fail as to succeed. And Americans worried about a new trend in politics, politicians organizing into self-interested blocks. Which they thought was a horrible thing because it meant that People basically were lining up to promote themselves and not thinking anymore about serving any kind of national good. This is Joanne Freeman, a historian at Yale. She says that today we call these blocks political parties, but at the time politicians called them factions, and nobody thought they were a good idea. One of the people most anxious about this new trend was a Connecticut congressman named James Hillhouse. And he believes that the thing that's possibly going to tear the nation apart is the demon of faction, the demon of party. It needs to be crushed, and he has the great way to crush it. Hillhouse thought the root of the country's faction problem was the presidential election. All that campaigning tended to get Americans roused up and divided against each other. So his solution was simple. Just take the popular vote out of the election. And so he comes up with this idea, which does sound a little insane, but which he actually meant seriously, um, which is that you have a box, and in the box you have a whole bunch of white balls and one colored ball, and every senator would pull a ball out of the box, and whoever gets that colored ball becomes president of the United States. Hillhouse's plan was never implemented, but it did have some high-profile backers. Years later, the chief justice of the Supreme Court, John Marshall, wrote that while the whole popular election thing had sounded good while the Constitution was being written, in retrospect, he would have preferred the colored balls plan. Just about anything, apparently, would be better than a government structured around factions. The very thing that was so scary to the political elite back then, broad-based, well-entrenched groups of self-interested voters, is today the thing that many politicians, especially Republicans, pine for. That's because those Republicans are facing an insurgent faction that threatens their ability to govern. This week, the political world was rocked by the stunning primary upset of my own representative in Congress, Virginia's Eric Cantor. It was the first ever renomination defeat for a sitting House majority leader. And so we thought it might be a good time to replay a show we produced last year on the history of political factions. We'll look at how another Republican faction, after the Civil War, forced through their own radical agenda, equal rights for all citizens. And we'll consider the Democratic Party faction that gave rise to the state's rights rhetoric that is strong in today's Republican Party. Throughout, we'll be considering this question. When has intra-party conflict stalled the government, and when has it been a force for change? First, though, we're going to return to my interview with Joanne Freeman. She explained that for the founders, faction and party meant pretty much the same thing, a small group of citizens pushing for their own interests. Nobody liked the idea of factional conflict, but they figured it was inevitable. But when factions started to get big and they started to look more like what we would call national political parties, well, Freeman says the founders began to worry. The thing that really frightens them is that not local, small 
clashing factions, but the idea that you might have national factions, that you might have national teams that extend broadly enough, sweepingly enough, geographically enough, that it would affect the national government. And, and, and you know, it would have been mind-blowing for them at the very beginning to conceive of something being able to be continent-wide. I mean, they would have assumed there were so many interests, so much diversity, so much localism. The idea that you could have two national teams, I just don't think they would have assumed that that would happen or that it would happen so quickly. And the whole theory of the Constitution, as its drafters imagined it, was that it would be an insider job, that I would represent the interests of my state and we'd work out some workable agreement. There wouldn't be, in other words, a national political public. There wouldn't be a national public opinion. National politics was essentially the preserve of the big men who uh, were sent to New York, Philadelphia, or Washington. Absolutely. That the Congress would be a lot of guys representing local interests, banging up against each other with their interests, and somehow or other coming to some kind of agreement that, generally speaking, would serve some kind of general good. And that notion of a, a national political elite solving problems and coming up with workable solutions, that's what was at risk when there was national party formation because it would no longer be an insider job and then all the risks that are associated with a volatile, mobilized public would come to the fore. Exactly. That's yet another component that's scary about a national party is if it's national and publicly organized, it's not just a bunch of elite guys teaming up. It's a bunch of elite guys who have a means of arousing huge numbers of people to take a side against another side. Was this just an abstract concern or did they actually encounter what they feared? No, they actually encountered what they feared. I mean, they were they were scared <laughs> of massive numbers of people in the streets protesting, uh, parading, marching, gathering in groups and speaking out against the government. I mean, poor Alexander Hamilton confronts a bunch of people in 1795 protesting a treaty. And when he tries to calm them down and say, look, you don't have a right to protest a treaty. Who cares what you think about a treaty? You're not the government. They throw rocks at his head. Whoa. Oh, Ham so Hamilton rocks. That's, that's, that's great. That's Hamilton rocks in ways he never would have imagined. Yes. Joanne, when fearful politicians looked out at the popular mobilization, democratization of politics and said, whoa, where is this going? What were they worried about? What, what form would this excess of democracy take? Well, if you put yourself back in that period when you've got a brand new government that people aren't sure at the time is going to be sticking around for very long. I mean, you do have people in letters at the time saying things like, if this government lasts another five years, here's what I think we should do. It makes perfect sense that having a, a roused populace would seem as though it's something that could rip the nation apart. Right. Because some of those, th those early parties seemed to many people at the time to be kind of sectional. You mm. had the Federalists who seemed to be more of a New England kind of a party and the Republicans who seemed to be more a Southern-based party. And so... Part of what begins to happen really more in the 19th century is that the nation is expanding. And as it expands and it gets new states, the, the question keeps coming up again and again and again. Well, is this going to be a slave state or a free state? Right. And that brings this issue again and again and again into public view, brings the controversy again into the middle of Congress, into the middle of 
public affairs. Um, so slave states and free states always have what, that big major problem, among other problems, that are dividing them. And it's something that people at the time are very aware needs to be overcome. So parties in this uh, early period uh, are well suspect. They have questionable legitimacy because they seem to jeopardize the whole national project. But something happens over the next couple of decades, and that is Americans get right with parties. How does that understanding of party transform? What are the sources of the normalization of party conflict? What enables that to happen? Well, partly that's a matter of practical politics. I mean, partly you have people like um, Martin Van Buren, who he doesn't get to a lot of credit for much, but we can give him credit <laughs> for this. He's an early person who was a, a New York politico, was really skilled on a local level with organizing and structuring politics and getting people engaged and winning elections. And he's an early person, and he writes a really uh, – an extended kind of an essay in which he says, you know, I actually think national parties could be a good thing mm-hmm. because they're, they're going to allow people to join up together. And not only that, but if we have national parties, they'll hold together the North and South because they'll be joined together on one team. Right. So he actually makes that realization that actually maybe a, a national party could be not only practical, not only something that could help one win if you've really corralled that force, but could perhaps be union saving. Yeah. How would it save the union, though? You've suggested that there are deep strains in the union at the outset, sectionalism and the big differences over slavery. Uh, how could parties transcend those differences? Well, if you get people who have enough shared interests that they're willing to find a way to, I don't want to say fudge, get around, (laughs) massage the slavery problem, (laughs) essentially, if you can get people on the same side working for the same thing who are willing to try and figure out what to do with the slavery issue in order to get these other things that they agree on, then in that sense, a national party could hold North and South together. It could, it could, in a sense, force people to figure out how to get by on the slavery issue in order to get other things that they want. So the whole premise is that you have to have controversial issues that are just controversial enough to justify mobilization, but not so controversial that they destroy the union. That's a fine line, isn't it? I guess it is kind of a fine line. <laughs> Luckily for us, we have lots of issues. <laughs> <laughs> What's remarkable is that Martin Van Buren takes so long to come up with a rationale for national parties. How many years have elapsed? Almost a half century or yeah. before Martin Van Buren says, you know, what we've been doing is actually okay. It's amazing it takes that long and it's amazing even then that the response is kind of, huh. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> what an interesting idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So how about the dangerous people we talked about? Uh, How did uh, politicians uh, get right with the people? I mean, parties, if parties are going to be normalized, then a mobilized people has to seem less threatening. So what makes it possible for politicians, who are, of course, better than we are, and they rule the world, (laughs) to to accept democracy? Well, one of the vital connectors in this whole process, and it's not that it didn't exist before, but it's much more national to a much greater degree later, is the press. Mm -hmm. Because politicians beginning more in the 1820s and 1830s than before really realize that they can very personally use the press to talk to the public, to engage with the public, to corral the public. You mean they're manipulating public opinion? 
they are manipulating public <laughs> opinion. They are. They are happily manipulating public opinion. They're learning how, as a matter of fact. I mean, they're in the process of learning how. I mean, you can see them in Congress in this period standing up and saying something and then trying to take it back when they realize that maybe <laughs> they shouldn't have said that because the press is watching and actually on second thought, uh, you guys in the gallery taking notes on this, don't take notes on that. <laughs> Right. So they're they're on training wheels as far as figuring out how to how to milk this resource, but they're definitely very deliberately trying to use it for all it's worth. Joanne Freeman is a professor of history at Yale University 